first step in both the Vipassana practice and the metta practice is collecting the attention, it's gathering the attention. We gather in the scattered mind and shepherd it back either to the breath or to the body or to hearing or when we're doing the metta practice shepherding the mind back to the phrases or the image of the person we're sending it to. And in this process of collecting the attention, concentrating the mind, from time to time we get overcome by different of the hindrances, sometimes singly, sometimes multiply. Sometimes we get overwhelmed by afflictive emotions, those emotions which are really painful to be with. But slowly, as we keep coming back, as we make that effort to come back to our main focus of attention, gradually and over time, the mind begins to settle down, begins to get a little bit quieter, begin to create, uh, to some degree, an inner spaciousness, inner relaxation. Slowly the mind becomes somewhat less reactive, less judgmental. We're not so completely lost in the discursive mind, in the proliferation of thoughts, in our particular stories. As we abide uh, more and more in the simplicity of the present moment, just as we settle back into that very soft, open, exact, relaxed awareness, what happens is that our minds begin to relax, our hearts begin to relax, begin to open. We begin to see ourselves with much greater clarity and see parts of ourselves that we had not seen before, or not seen before so clearly. It's a poem by a 10th or 11th century Japanese woman poet, Izumi. She wrote, Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. And when I read that, I really thought uh, how close that is to what we're doing in the meditation practice, learning to know ourselves completely with no part left out. In this process of collecting the attention, settling back into the moment of opening up, as we create more inner space, there often comes a flood of memories, of images, and at first it might be things from our recent past, and over time, these memories or images or impressions start to come up and reveal themselves from the far distant past, things we didn't even know we were holding or remembering. They start to emerge in the mind. 
this process that happens for most people is really an emptying out. It's a clearing out process. There's this vast accumulation of impressions you know, that we carry. We may, be, we may think of people that we haven't thought of in years. Suddenly we're sitting watching our breath and this person will pop into mind. Or we'll start <coughs> remembering, reviewing old movies and TV programs. <laughs> you know, I went through so many hours of that. Father Knows Best revisited. <laughs> we remember past incidents, past situations. And with the power of a focused awareness, sometimes these impressions and memories and images are extremely vivid, extremely clear. Very often, these memories of people or of situations from the past may carry the same emotional charge that they did then. <clears throat> now, we may be reliving old hurts or arguments and feeling again the same old reactivity. Sometimes we remember things, the unwholesome things we've done, you know, and it brings up the remorse. Just a further little note on Sharon's <laughs> <laughs> true confession about my life. <laughs> this is just kind of a little PS to the story <laughs> of that poor. Uh, it turns out that Almost nobody else went to that party either. <laughs> and that's why when I thought of it, <laughs> felt so badly. <laughs> Forty years later. <laughs> I had another, another example of a very sort of powerful thing come up in my practice. Uh, when I was in the Peace Corps, which I went to right after college, I was went to Thailand. We were, we were doing some training in Hawaii. And as part of the training, for some reason, uh, they had us kill chickens. And I ended up teaching English in Bangkok, so this had absolutely no relevance. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, at the time, I didn't know it, and this was part of the program. And I had this very strong, macho idea that this is something I ought to be able to do. I'm a man, and it was a manly thing. <laughs> and so there was this poor chicken, and this other volunteer in training was kind of holding it. And, you know. and I had this picture of myself from just after kind of holding this chicken that I had just done in, and there was this big grin on my face, as if, you know, so... I was really proud of myself. Well, years later, and this is after the Peace Corps and after I'd been in India practicing, and I was in intensive meditation, this started coming up in my mind with a very unwanted clarity. <laughs> you know, and I really started reliving actually what that was about. And it was 
was just like murder, murdering this being. And I felt I this tremendous, tremendous remorse about it. And just looking at the delusion that I had been in, of even thinking that that was a good thing to do, it was a very powerful uh, a few days, and it lasted. Like this whole incident lasted a few days in my practice as it was coming up so strongly. And it was very painful, you know, to relive it consciously. But what I saw and appreciated so much about the practice is that I understood that by attending to it with mindfulness, you know, with awareness, with an honest acceptance, yes, this is what I had done. This was unskillful and feeling the remorse. There was a real purification uh, that was happening. And it came up and it came up and it came up and it was very strong and vivid and painful. (coughs) And at a certain point it left. It really cleared out the charge, the emotional uh, sorrow of that really, uh, really left. And I saw that I appreciated this purifying aspect of bringing awareness to all the impressions, to all the memories, you know, that may come up. We've all done, you know, a combination of skillful and unskillful things. So we want to appreciate the practice as a way of purifying uh, the mind stream, you know, of this As our mind becomes quieter and as our hearts relax into the experience, whatever it is that's arising, we begin to see all of these things with less projection and a lot less defensiveness. In the softness of awareness, we're not so caught in trying to defend or protect an image of ourselves. There's just a willingness to be with things as they are. And in this lack of defensiveness, there's a much, often a much greater ability to both forgive ourselves and to forgive others. Because we're not so fixed in our position. So all of this has to do with the opening, the opening of the heart that takes place through awareness. As we settle into this space of less defensiveness, less projection, more openness, more willingness to be with the whole range of experience, something very beautiful starts to happen. And that is we begin to experience feelings of metta, feelings of loving kindness arising quite spontaneously in the practice. begin to get a sense, not theoretically, but really deeply from our experience, that the loving kindness and compassion really are the feelings that are coming from our deepest place. You know, when when we let go or strip away all the more surface perceptions, we find that at the depth of our experience, the depth of our heart-mind, there's this basic reservoir of goodwill. And we begin to feel this as our deepest place. 
And that's a very beautiful discovery. That underneath all the reactions and all the judgments and all the aggressive or aversive patterns, that underneath it all, when we settle, we connect with this feeling of metta within us. We begin to see that loving kindness is an expression of awareness. Loving kindness is the basic generosity of the heart. Now, it's the very simple wish that for ourselves and for others to be happy. This feeling of loving kindness, it's not seeking any self-benefit. It's not wanting anything back. It's not saying, be happy, and what can I get from it? It's just a, a movement outward, a movement of generosity towards all beings. Be happy. Very simple. In this feeling of loving kindness, no distinction is made between people, between beings. And this is what differentiates it very starkly and very clearly from the feeling of desire and attachment, which is often confused with metta. You know, for most of us, in our lives and our relationships, love and attachment are inextricably entangled. And sometimes it's even hard to imagine, well, how could I really love somebody without attachment? They've become so mixed up with one another. One of the uh, really transforming insights that comes from the stillness and clarity of meditation is we begin to distinguish, we begin to discriminate between different feelings. We begin to separate out and see that attachment or desire, that feeling and the feeling of love and loving kindness are two very different feelings. They're not the same thing at all. And we learn something else. That desire and attachment does not enhance the feeling of love in any way whatsoever. In fact, not only doesn't it enhance it, it serves in a variety of ways to obscure it. When love and desire are mixed up together, it's always for a limited number of people. Now, we can have desire for one person, for two people, maybe for three people. (laughs) But I don't think there's anybody who has desire for all beings. It would be a hell realm. I mean, could you imagine every being that you saw having desire for? It would be horrendous. (laughs) 
But on the contrary, loving kindness precisely has this capacity. And that's what's so amazing about it. That we actually can wish well for all beings. There's no limit. You know, there's no, uh, it's not in limited supply within us. We can have these feelings and direct these feelings of goodwill to everyone we meet. And that's the great power and the great difference, you know, of loving kindness, of metta. This ability to embrace all. And there's another nuance of this feeling of metta which is very striking and that is that loving kindness or genuine love unlike desire or attachment does not easily turn into ill will. I mean how often in our lives or people we know where people can have this great desire, love for one another, and a week later or a year later or ten years later, somehow, you know, it's turned into its opposite. This does not happen with the feeling of metta for one very important reason. And that is the feeling of loving kindness does not depend on how the other person is. does not depend on the other person being a certain way because it's the simple wish coming out of our own heart to be happy regardless of how the other person is. This becomes very clear and maybe you got a little taste of it this afternoon. Uh, You know, when we go from benefactor friend to neutral person, begin to see that here's a person that we really don't know and can actually start generating loving feelings towards. And I had this experience very strongly when I was doing the metta intensively. And I had gotten up to the neutral person, and I didn't even know who to exactly send it to. And my teacher said, I was in India at the time, said, well, there's this old gardener, you know, in the Vihara, in the place I was staying. Do it towards him. This was a person that I passed every single day that I was there. You know, I saw him every day. And until that time, he could have been a telephone pole for all that I was relating to him. It was, that itself was shocking to me when I realized that he was another human being. So then I started doing metta. He was my neutral person. You know, so all day long, be happy, be healthy, be filled with love. Well, after a few days of this, it's like every time I saw him, I got this big smile. (laughs) You know, he was my love object. (laughs) And it was amazing. He didn't change. (laughs) It was amazing to learn that how we feel about people is up to us. It does not depend on the other person. Well, this is tremendously empowering because usually we live under the impression that it's other people making us feel a certain way. An old girlfriend of mine had a great line from our relationship. 
she used to tell me, stop making me feel aversion. (laughs) Well, no one makes us feel aversion. It may be a habit, it may be a deeply ingrained habit, and there may be difficult circumstances, but how we feel is up to us. And the development and strengthening of this feeling of loving-kindness begin to see we can tune into that channel when it's developed at any time. It's particularly interesting when we're with someone who's difficult, and that's going to be tomorrow's meditation. (laughs) I mean, in the classical Buddhist uh, language, it's where we start sending metta towards the enemy. It doesn't have to be some major big enemy in one's life, but just someone who's difficult, with whom we're having difficulty. Just as an exercise you might do, which I have found very helpful and transformative in the very moment. There was a situation arising with somebody, and whenever I thought of this person and the situation, I could just feel my heart contract in aversion of dislike because of something uh, they were doing. And for a while, for quite a number of times, I was just caught in this feeling and staying very contracted. But at a certain point, I really got interested in the suffering that this was causing me. And what I learned to do with it was to drop out of the storyline of what was going on, which was just feeding, you know, that feeling. To drop out of the storyline And to trace back energetically, to trace back the sensations right to that contraction in the heart you know, that I was holding in the aversion. So kind of just trace it back, feel the contraction in the heart, and then relax the heart. And it was quite amazing because as I actually could feel the contraction and then make that move of relaxing it into the space of awareness, the feeling of being separate from that person completely disappeared. I mean, it was quite amazing because as I let go of that contraction, I let go of that ego stance of me and them, relaxed into the space of non-separation. Then it was just two beings doing the dance. And there was a feeling of much greater connectedness, much greater love, much greater compassion, just for all the crazy dance steps we do with one another. How we feel is up to us. We have that capacity to connect with feelings of metta and loving kindness. the simple wish, be happy. May I be happy, may you be happy. And we practice it in relationship to our own minds. There's a samurai poem from, I don't know, the 13th century or some 
something like that. And one line in this poem, which I really like, it says, I make my mind my friend. You know, and in one way, that's what we're doing here. You know, we're just sitting and being with every part of ourselves, no part left out, and we make <coughs> our minds our friends instead of being in battle with it. And we take the same relationship of friendliness to all others in the world. There's a Tibetan uh, teacher who instead of, you know, when he'd meet you or greet you, instead of saying, you know, hello, how are you? He would say, has your heart been kind? I thought that's really a nice, it's a nice reminder, you know, that this is how we can practice being with one another, practice having a kind heart. So as the feelings of metta and goodwill, as we settle more and more into them, what happens is that our minds get a lot softer, a lot more pliable. And in this respect, metta becomes the ground or the foundation of wisdom. Because as our minds and hearts are softer and more pliable, we're less reactive to difficulties. Now, instead of being impatient or reactive or judgmental, this greater softness allows us just to be accepting of things that are difficult. And as we're more accepting, we can bring some wise discernment to those situations. Instead of the knee-jerk reactions, as we often get involved in, okay, just let me be with this, whether it's within our own body or mind or a situation in the world, there's a little more space. We're more patient. We're less reactive. We bring in some discernment. What's the wise response here? With the discernment, we make wiser choices. As the result of wiser choices, we become happier in our lives. Because we're happier in our lives, we feel more loving-kindness and metta. The metta makes us even softer, more chance for wise discernment, wise choices, more happiness, more, it's this spiral upwards. It's not a bad way to go. <laughs> it's important, I think, for all of us to realize that the Buddha's teachings is not simply something to admire in others. You know, oh yeah, that seems like a good idea. It's about our own transformation, the way we're living our lives, the choices <coughs> we're making. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese meditation master and poet and activist and really a wonderful being, he said, practicing Buddhism or practicing the Dharma is a clever way to enjoy life. <laughs> Happiness is available. Please help yourselves to it. You know, and that is the kind of juice, the, the essence of Dharma practice. It's about happiness, genuine happiness. <coughs> As we become a little more centered, 
as we settle into uh, a relaxed awareness and these feelings of metta begin to come more spontaneously, then when we come close to suffering in ourselves or others, the metta is transformed into compassion. If we're resting in a place of goodwill and we meet suffering, then what is the response to that suffering? The response is one of compassion. Well, how can I help? Now, compassion is that feeling which motivates us to try to alleviate the suffering. And it comes as a natural response of the heart in the face of suffering. Compassion comes stronger and stronger as we're willing to come closer and closer to the suffering. Some years ago, I saw this video, which you may be familiar with. It was, it was called Romero. It was about the life of the archbishop, I believe, in El Salvador during the you know, terrible kind of civil war and struggle there. And the movie started out with him really being part of you know, the higher establishment. But then it traced his growing awareness of the tremendous amount of suffering that was going on in El Salvador at that time. Came really close to the people who, you know, were in this tremendous uh, place of suffering. And the video is a wonderful and very moving account of how he came closer to the suffering, how he allowed himself to open to it, how this tremendous outflow of compassion started to come from him. And it, was, it was really a very inspiring lesson uh, in the wellspring of compassion. But suffering is all around us. Tomorrow night Steve is going to talk more and this is the first noble truth of the Buddhist teaching, which is the truth of suffering. He's going to elaborate this in detail. If suffering is all around us and compassion comes from being close to suffering, then the question arises, why isn't there more compassion in the world? If suffering is the cause of compassion and there's so much suffering, why is there so little compassion? That's the koan. When we look, when we investigate this, both in the world but more particularly in our own experience, we see that what happens very often is that we're not open to the suffering that's there. As we come close to it, very often there are patterns of denial or avoidance or closing down because it's painful. We don't like to feel the suffering. It can be difficult to stay open to it. And so we retreat from it. And as we retreat from it, it closes off that heart of compassion within us. This is one of my favorite stories, which many of you have heard, but it's it's so (laughs) funny and to the point. It was told to me by a friend of mine about his grandfather and father. And they were in a car 
traveling on December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor Day. And they're in the car, and the radio announcer comes on announcing you know, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And the first thing that his grandfather says to his father is, don't tell your mother. <laughs> Now, World War II would be a big one to keep out. <laughs> that would have been a hard one to avoid. <laughs> and we can laugh at this, but on a differing scale, we all do the same thing. And then we do it with ourselves. We kind of, we close off. We try to keep it out. Behind all of these movements of pulling away from suffering in whatever way we do, you know, and it, it could be avoidance, it could be denial, it could be aggression. Sometimes we get aggressive in the face of suffering. Behind all of these movements of pulling away are some very deeply conditioned fears. That's why we pull away from suffering, out of fear. In meditation practice and in our lives, what happens is we reach edges, we reach boundaries. You may have noticed this in the retreat. It becomes very vivid on retreat. Where we just reach an edge of what we're willing to be with, of what's okay, of what's, uncom- of what's comfortable. And we reach that edge and then begin to experience something a little more intense or a little more difficult and we can feel that shrinking back from it. It's right at that edge, right at that boundary of whatever it is, that fear, the very deeply conditioned fears, begin to reveal themselves. And that's why this is such a valuable place in practice to explore. Right at the edge of what we're willing to be with. In order to connect more deeply with love and compassion and more full awareness, we need to investigate how these fears are arising. We really need to to see clearly this process and how fear can be transformed into a very liberating understanding. Now, each one of us is conditioned in different ways and we have fear about different things. For some people, there might be a great fear of discomfort, of being uncomfortable. You know, and so we try to organize our lives so that we're never uncomfortable. It generally doesn't work very well. And I had a, I had a very striking experience of this I was in India and going up to Kashmir uh, for the summer months when it's very hot on the plains. And I was on one of these, you know, interminable Indian bus rides, really long, I don't know, it's like 17 hours. And the bus was old and rickety and crowded and it smelled of oil and gas and fumes and it was 
you know, and I'm quite tall, and so I was kind of just sitting squashed, and I was right over the engine, you know, whatever that's called. And when I got on this bus, and I just, I know this is a long ride, my first strategy, the first thought I had, okay, I'm going to just stay on my breath. I'm going to get really locked into the breath <laughs> and stay really concentrated and just keep all of this out. And so I got on the bus, and that's what I tried to do. And I tried to do it for several hours. You know, to, well, it was extremely stressful. Like, you know, just trying to hold on to the breath for dear life so I wouldn't have to feel all of this discomfort. Finally, I mean, it took me that long to realize this is stupid. <laughs> and so I let go of that, and I just began to let all of these uncomfortable, unpleasant sense impressions come in. You know, just the jostling of the bus and the crowdedness and the smells and everything. I just let everything wash through. And it was amazing, because when I let go of my fear of being uncomfortable and could just let it all in instead of trying to keep it out, it actually was no problem. But it was amazing to see what I had constructed out of fear of the discomfort and how that just creates more tension. So really the, the essence of the practice is to let it all in, whatever's happening. Let it in, let it wash through. This fear of discomfort. For many people, there's a fear of pain. Now, this is a real, this is a real concern for many of us. And maybe you've gotten, you know, some glimpse of this in your practice. Pain starts to arise in the body. And because there's a fear of feeling pain, we concoct all kinds of strategies for dealing with the pain. Sometimes it's real aversion, and the mind just goes into this mode of, I hate this. Sometimes it's in the mode of self-pity, you know, where we just start feeling sorry for ourselves. And it's like Sharon was saying last night, you know, everybody else in the room is in bliss, and I'm here with this horrible pain, and we kind of wallow in self-pity. Or sometimes we start bargaining with the pain. You know, I'll watch you if you'll go away. <laughs> and we think that's being mindful. It's not. All of this is based on fear. Now, what's interesting with pain and our fear of it is that very often it's not really the fear of what we're feeling in the moment. It's the fear of anticipated pain. Now we imagine what it's going to be like or we extrapolate it in our minds. Well, if it feels like this now, how will I bear it in the next five minutes or ten minutes or hour or day or lifetime? And we build up this scenario in our minds and then get very afraid. So it's very useful when we're at that edge of what we can easily or comfortably be with with pain just to watch 
whether the fear is of what's happening just then in the moment or there's fear of something that the mind is creating, some anticipated feeling. There's a way to bring metta into this relationship to the body in pain, which is very wonderful. And it was first taught by this very old Sri Lankan monk, his name was Ananda Maitreya, who was here, it must have been 10 years ago, and he was in his 90s then. And he might still be alive. I, I haven't heard that he died, but... Anyway, he had this one, this was this 93-year-old monk who was just, he was wonderful. And he taught this way of metta. He would go through the body and he would say, may my head be happy. May my neck be happy. May my shoulders be happy. And he would just go through the whole body like that. And it's really a wonderful practice because it shows us the possibility of infusing metta into awareness. So as we're feeling, whatever we're feeling, it's held with that loving feeling. And so we're really, we're bringing love and awareness together. Okay, so sometimes there's fear of discomfort, sometimes fear of pain. For many people, there might be fear of certain emotions. Certain emotions are difficult. They're painful to be with. They're painful to bear. There are certain ones for each of us that are not okay. They're not okay to feel. And different ones for each of us. It might be anger. It might be unworthiness. It might be loneliness. It might be embarrassment. It might be rage. It might be boredom whatever. Certain feelings which, because they're so uncomfortable, we don't want to feel and we close ourselves off. Now, in our culture, how much of our society revolves around people's desire not to feel bored? As if that would be horrendous, <laughs> no, just the worst. And we have to do everything we can not to feel bored. Well, it takes a lot of energy you know, to build a whole life around the defense against a certain feeling. It would be much simpler, as we're doing here, to simply learn to allow whatever feelings they are, even when they're painful, it's okay, let me just feel it. They come and go like everything else. Often people are afraid of the feeling of insecurity. The basic, that, that, that feeling insecure is unpleasant. So we construct a life so we never have to feel insecure. insecure about our bodies, about our relationships, about the world. Well, things are insecure. Alan Watts wrote this wonderful book called The Wisdom of Insecurity. And there's a wisdom in understanding that rather than trying to protect ourselves from the feeling of it. 
And what's really interesting is to see how much of the greed and desire in the mind comes out of the fear of insecurity, fear of feeling deprived. Because we're afraid to have this feeling. I'll just tell one little story. It's an IMS retreat story. I was on retreat here. Um, And as you may have noticed during your time here, sometimes at lunchtime, before certain dishes, uh, there's a sign, moderation, please. And one of the things that I noticed is that this sign, moderation, please, almost always is in front of the dishes I really like. (laughs) So I'm going through the line, and I get to this dish. It was sesame spinach. (laughs) And it's kind of in this bowl, and it said, moderation, please. So everything I'm going to tell you now I saw in retrospect. I didn't see it going through. So I'm going through the line. I see this sign, moderation, please. I look at this sesame spinach, and the first thing my mind does, it thinks, well, how much can I take and it still be moderate? (laughs) It's like there was this feeling of, can I get enough? And I proceeded to take as much as I thought I could get away with. (laughs) Well, about, you know, 45 seconds later, I had this massive guilt attack. Uh, Did I take too much? And this whole lunch period, I'm looking over my shoulder to see (laughs) if there was still some spinach left for the people behind me. (laughs) It's like, because in that moment, that feeling of panic about not having enough, you know, it just, it drove that action. Well, the sesame spinach isn't such a huge deal But this pattern gets acted out a lot in so many ways in our lives and in the world because we haven't learned how to be okay with those unpleasant feelings. Okay, that feeling of not having enough. Okay, and I just feel that. Can I be with it? I don't have to protect myself against it. Very often fears are fueled by thoughts of the future. That's another interesting pattern to watch in our own minds. You know, we get lost in various potential disaster scenarios, whether our personal disasters or social disasters. We create these scenarios in our mind and then get afraid. And this happens even more strongly when we think that it's likely it really is going to happen. And so that just fuels the fear. And then the fear starts generating either anger or despair. But what we're forgetting in that moment is that all that's happening is that certain thoughts are arising in the mind. That's what's happening. These scenarios are not going on. It's just a thought. There's one story which just encapsulates this whole insight and it provides a very useful mental note. 
to the story of this uh, Zen practitioner in Japan who lived in a cave, and he was a great artist. And he spent all these years in a cave, and he was painting a picture of a tiger on the wall of the cave. And he spent years doing this. And he painted it so realistically that when he finished, he looked at it and got frightened. (laughs) Okay, we do the same thing many, many times a day. We paint tigers in our mind. We paint pictures in our thoughts of something happening and we look at them and get frightened or involved, whatever. We forget that they're just painted tigers. They're just thoughts arising. So I recommend the use of that label for you. You know, when you really get caught in a scenario of one kind or another, use the note, paint a tiger. <laughs> and you'll see, Psh, oh yeah, that's all that's going on. For each of us, different fears arise at different times. We all have our own particular conditioning on particular stories. And in the times of these fears arising, there's very often a great vulnerability there. You know, it's a very, it's a very tender uh, state when fear is strong. But in that vulnerability, there's also a great potential for a powerful heart connection. I'll just tell you one, one of my fear stories. Fear comes up. I, mean, there, I have a lot of fear stories. But this one was really, the, in a way, the most transforming. I was doing a session with Suzaki Roshi, who's a very fierce Zen master, and he's really demanding, and the whole Zen form is very tight and controlled, and, and everything's in a group, and there's not much space. You know, and, he's, and he uses the koan method, where this kind of and he gives you a kind of puzzle or problem that doesn't have an intellectual answer. You really have to respond from experience. And then you see him four times a day to give your response to the koan. And you know, everything's pressured and building, and he's sitting there very fierce. So we're doing this session, and he gives me this koan, and I go in these four times a day, do my bows. So I give my answer, and he looks at me and he says, mm, very stupid. <laughs> And this was just over and over again, day after day. It was just one variation. I thought I was doing well when he said, oh, very good, but not Zen. (laughs) So I'm getting more and more uptight, you know, as this, and I was dreading going in there. I mean, it was just like this. So finally, in one interview, I think he had some pity, and he gave me an easier koan. Right? He kind of backed me up. And so he gave me the koan, how do you manifest Buddha nature while chanting a sutra, while chanting a discourse? And we had been chanting every day. Okay, that I understood that. You know, I go in and just chant something. But whether he knew or not, I don't know. But this just touched 
this deep, deep, deep conditioning I had about singing, (laughs) which started when a third grade music teacher told me Goldstein just mouthed the words. (laughs) And that was reinforced over the years many times from some of my dearest and closest friends. (laughs) Okay, so this just touched off this huge fear. So I'm sitting there, in the sitting before the the interview, I'm just rehearsing, you know, a million times going through my mind, you know, these few lines of a chant I was going to do. So I go, the bell rings, I go in there, I waited till the last, I was the last one. I go in, I do my bows, say the koan, I start chanting. I totally screwed it up. I mean, I got all the words wrong, I got everything mixed up, and this was you know, after this pressure cooker of a session, I felt, I felt awful. I felt so completely exposed and vulnerable and naked and raw. It just felt like my heart was completely exposed. It was a horrible feeling. Then he just sat there and he looked at me and it was an amazing moment. He just looked at me and he said, oh, very good. (laughs) and it was amazing because he was right there I mean he wasn't just trying to make me feel good and it was precisely because I was so open and so exposed and so vulnerable that those words it literally felt like they were touching my heart and I just saw the power you know and the possibility that can come when we're able to be in that state. Now, even though it's tremendously difficult, and it's really hard to be with, but something very powerful uh, is open. There's tremendous potential in that state of vulnerability. (coughs) Okay, so mindfulness gathers the attention. We begin to create some inner space. From that spaciousness, feelings of metta, start, feelings of basic goodwill start to arise spontaneously. And as we come close to suffering, we feel the compassion. But we also reach these edges where we begin to close off to the suffering, our edges, our boundaries. And it's right at that place that fears begin to emerge. So the question then is, how can we work with these fears? How can we work with them skillfully? It might be fear of pain, it might be fear of certain feelings or emotions, it might be fear of death. The first step is to recognize it as it arises. We have to become aware, yes, fear is, fear is arising, fear is appearing. Can we recognize it and can we accept it? There's a favorite mantra, Vipassana mantra, which I used with fear and it was very helpful. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Just let me feel this. Let me feel the feeling rather than trying to avoid it.
Thich Nhat Hanh wrote something. Uh, he wrote it about anger, but it really applies to fear as well. He said, the Buddhist attitude is to take care, and I'll substitute fear here, is to take care of fear. We don't suppress it. We don't run away from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. The fear is no longer alone. It is with our mindfulness. Fear is like a closed flower in the morning. As the sun shines on the flower, the flower will bloom because the sunlight penetrates deeply into the flower. Mindfulness is like that. If you keep breathing, mindfulness particles will penetrate the fear. When sunshine penetrates a flower, the flower cannot resist. It has to open itself and show its heart to the sun. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your fear will soon crack and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. Can we be with fear in that way, you know, with that kind of tenderness? As we might be with a child who's afraid. Now, it's easy for us to understand how we would be with a fearful child, just being present and caring. But somehow we have difficulty being with our own fears in that way, and that's the practice. We want to take the measure of the situation. You know, sometimes we're in a situation and fear arises. We want to apply some discriminating wisdom here. Because sometimes we want to <coughs> open to the fear and stay right with it and perhaps even act, even though fear is present. And this is really the quality of courage. You know, where even though fear is present, it does not have to limit us. We can act anyway if we've developed this ability to be accepting of the fear. We want to apply some wisdom to the situation. The Dalai Lama had a very useful piece of advice here. Somebody asked him how we can work with deep fears. He said, if you have some fear of pain or suffering, you should examine whether there is anything you can do about it. If you can, if you can do something about it, there is no need to worry. If you cannot do anything about it, then there's also no need to worry. (laughs) We also need to see those times when the suffering may be too much, where we don't have the strength, we don't have the balance, and for whatever reason, the suffering is overwhelming. At that time, we need to recognize that and to pull back, to retreat, That's not the time to plow through it. That's the time to back up, to regain balance, to regain strength. And so it takes uh, a great sensitivity to our own process. We want to recognize the fear, become accepting of it, shine the light of awareness on it want to take the measure of the situation, and we want to explore, investigate, 
the nature of the mind itself, the nature of fear itself. I'm going to talk more about this in a few nights. But it's really about seeing deeply the empty, transparent nature of all phenomena. Now we tend to solidify things and then get lost or imprisoned in that solidification. The whole practice of awareness, of wisdom, is to see the empty, transparent, insubstantial nature of all phenomena. There's a direct link between seeing the insubstantiality of things and the development of compassion. There was one very great Tibetan meditation master of this century. His name was Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. He was one of the teachers of the Dalai Lama and a, a really wonderful uh, great being, a non-sectarian. Non um, this is what he wrote. He said, when you realize the true emptiness or transparency of phenomena, you will spontaneously feel an all-embracing, non-conceptual compassion for all beings who are immersed in samsara's ocean of suffering because they cling to the notion of an ego. This troublesome ego, which is so concerned about itself, has in reality never begun to exist. It does not exist anywhere now, and so it cannot cease to exist. Not the slightest trace of it can be found. When you recognize the empty nature, therefore, any notion of there being an ego to dissolve vanishes. And at the same time, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns, uncontrived and effortless. As we see into the empty nature of phenomena, see into the empty nature of fear itself, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns, uncontrived and effortless. And so this is the whole movement of our practice. It's the movement from awareness to metta, to compassion, to open to suffering, and to the cultivation, the maturation of bodhicitta, that aspiration that our practice and our life be for the benefit of all. Let's sit for a few minutes.
to close with a poem by Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. This is really our practice. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.